0: Uh, Lord, we come together, and as we open your word, uh, we want to hear from you, and we want to see and hear your truth, and uh, so, Lord, I pray that uh, you give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Uh, Thank you for Dean and his efforts to put together and hear from you and put together this message this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would bless him and this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, no pressure. Okay. So uh, usually I like to do handouts, and they print it out kind of wonky, so they're kind of hanging on the door there. You got to flip them around if you want to tangle with them. But um, you know, if you want to pick one up and just follow up, it it really didn't. uh, Usually when I do the handout, it's more to just encourage people to stick their noses in this thing. That's when I'm up here. That's what I want to do. I want to encourage you to follow up on this stuff on your own time. You know, don't trust what's coming out of here. Trust what's in there. So, um, we're going to be studying 2 Chronicles chapter 30 today, but before we go there, I want to read uh, three other passages to help us recognize the the dynamic we're going to talk about. The Bible is full of verses that speak to the principles we'll find here, so this is just going to be a glimpse. So, here's the first one. It's from Proverbs. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, prideful eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. <clears throat> so let's uh let's address the elephant in the room. Hello, Mr. Elephant. Yes, God does indeed hate things. Uh We could uh, grapple with the implications of this as it applies to our culture today, but I'm just going to kind of double down on it real quick because God does everything perfectly. Which means he hates the things on this list with a perfect hatred. Now, what's really alarming is that each of these things can be related directly to how each of us approaches our relationship with God. Not sure that's true. Well, anybody rush to get here today, have an argument in the car, say horrible things to one another, sing that first song with our minds on what's going to be on TV later, and uh, whose innocent blood might we be shedding in the process. So if there was ever a dire examination to be made, it would be if each of us compared these verses to how we as individuals think about worship, service, and interact with God, it would be a deeply personal examination, a frightening examination, if we're being honest. So the condition of our heart as we, we relate to God matters hugely. Notice that I'm talking about relationship here, not religion. David recognizes this very thing when he says, the second passage, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David writes this after being called out by Nathan the prophet for what happened with Bathsheba. He's committed adultery, murder, James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. We can definitely see how this happened with David and Bathsheba. David is entirely guilty of breaking the whole law when he writes this psalm, and he knows it. He also recognizes that what God wants from him isn't some empty sacrifice or lip service. What God wants is a humble heart, a repentant and contrite heart. So we see that the condition of our heart matters and that our recognition of that condition as we approach God matters. But then what about how God reacts? Matthew has something to say about this in our next passage. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. These words were spoken of Jesus in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy about God's servant. It asserts that when we truly repent and come before God with a broken and contrite heart, the promise is that we won't be broken. God won't quench our smoldering wick. God's mercy and compassion wait for us when we approach him in humility. So that's the dynamic. The condition of our heart? Awful? And pretty routinely so. When we recognize this and humble ourselves and return to God, he meets us with mercy and compassion. Today we're going to see this very thing in action. An object lesson in what we just observed. We'll find it in Second Chronicles chapter 30. Like many books in scripture, Chronicles is a true, specific, and profoundly accurate history. A real account of real people doing real things at real times. I'm going to read through it and talk about some things along the way. And as we're going, we're going to be able to see ourselves, how this applies to us. But first, we need to establish the the context of the events that are recorded in it. And to begin, it's going to be a brief sweep of the history of Israel, and we kind of need to go almost all the way back to see this. So bear with me. 1445 BC, God frees the Israelites from slavery in Egypt by unleashing a series of plagues, One of which involves God slaying all the firstborn in Egypt, man and beast. This event was why God commanded the first Passover observance. A sacrificial lamb was slain, its blood smeared on the doorway. And then God, seeing the blood of the lamb, would pass over the house and preserve the lives of the people in it. Anyone not covered by the blood of the lamb was subject to the curse. Any of that sound familiar? continuing God then led the people out of Israel excuse me led the people of Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness and established them in their own country the 12 tribes of Israel struggled to conquer and control their land until David is anointed king over a united Israel <clears throat> excuse me David's son Solomon commissions and builds God's temple in Jerusalem during his wise and peaceful reign Then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, blows it that quickly. And the kingdom divides. Ten tribes to the north, Judah and Benjamin to the south. The northern ten tribes turn their backs on God and never look back. While Judah has its ups and downs, good kings, bad kings. Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, was definitely a down. Now, these kings didn't emerge and rule in a vacuum. Hezekiah grew up during his dad's unfortunate reign. What was that like? Well, you can read about all this in 2 Chronicles 28 or 2 Kings 15. And as I said, I always want to encourage you to go and check this stuff out. But here's a dire summary anyway, brutal stuff. Hezekiah might have had a dim memory of his grandfather, Jotham, who was a good king. Hezekiah was five when Grandpa Jotham died. And his father Ahaz took over. And so Hezekiah, in his formative years, had a front row seat to the severe downturn of the entire nation that followed his dad's ascension to the throne. Bitter infighting with northern Israel led by Pekah. Useless conflict, humiliating defeat by their own people. Hundreds of thousands dead. Hezekiah might recall when dad came home from a trip to Damascus with plans for a new altar and he commanded that that altar be erected in place of the altar that was already in the court of God's temple, Hezekiah might have a memory of a brother who died when dad sacrificed him to Molech by burning him. Hezekiah would certainly remember the Assyrian invasion of the northern ten tribes of Israel, which began and ended in his lifetime In fact, the reality of the progressive and imminent conquest and destruction of Israel by the Assyrians must have had a formative and definitive influence on every aspect of Hezekiah's life. A pale comparison, my mom was five years old when World War II broke out. I can only imagine how the implications of that conflict, even from a distance, informed her childhood and forged her as a person. Imagine being a child in France or Poland. At that time, Hezekiah might have been present to hear prophets like Isaiah or Micah or Hoshea, all of whom prophesied during his lifetime, speak boldly before his father. And Hezekiah would have seen his father's reaction, been privy to his dad's desperate foreign policy decisions. Hezekiah would have watched as Ahaz progressively descended into apostasy, idolatry and wholesale abandonment of God. Now, when Hezekiah takes the throne in 715 B.C., seven years had passed since the final conquest of Samaria, the capital of the northern ten tribes by the Assyrian army, and the deportation of the majority of the Israelites living in that region. Ironically, Dad would have probably said that the only reason the Assyrians didn't conquer all of Israel, including Judah, is because he had totally sold out to the Assyrians and their gods Ahaz likely prided himself on his astute observation that the Assyrians were the rising world power and that aligning his country with them early was the safer move. Hezekiah, however, recognized the truth. God, whom his father was completely ignoring. Worse, Ahaz had actively opposed God in every conceivable way. That God, Hezekiah recognized as the only thing standing between the Assyrians and complete victory over Israel. If you follow up with the further, re- further reading, you'll see this very truth plainly in action. So Hezekiah was 25 when he began to reign. This is one place where a mid-20s guy questioning and undoing everything his father did before him was a really good idea. Right? So I say this because the very first thing Hezekiah does is reopen the temple of God. His father had shut it down. Hezekiah reopens the temple and restores worship and sacrifice there. And this restored temple service is at first far from perfectly compliant with the law. You can read about that, too. And this is kind of a huge deal because Levitical temple service is pretty much a life or death prospect. You're either doing it right or you're not. If you're doing it right, you're alive. If you're not, well... And in this case, because of the suddenness of the reopening of the temple, they're sort of, they're sort of winging it. They're cutting some corners. And amazingly, they're, they're surviving to tell the tale. This is significant, as we're about to see. So that gets us to where we're going to be studying today. So let's begin. Second Chronicles, chapter 30. I'm going to read it in pieces, starting in verse 1. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah And wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month. For they could not keep it at that time because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient number. Nor had the people assembled in Jerusalem. And the plan seemed right to the king and all the assembly so they decided to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan that the people should come and keep the Passover to the Lord the God of Israel at Jerusalem for they had not kept it as often as prescribed so they agreed to celebrate the Passover in the second month because there wasn't there weren't enough consecrated priests to keep it on time now this is not unprecedented there's actually a provision in the law for unclean people to keep the Passover a month late But in this case, it's the whole assembly doing so, because pretty much the whole assembly is unclean. And we're about to see that some unclean people celebrate the Passover anyway. That they had not kept the Passover as often as prescribed was quite the understatement. We'll read later that since the time of Solomon, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. That means 215 years had passed on the proper celebration of a required yearly festival. 215 years since the reign of Solomon. Our country is not much older than that. Let's do the math. 1976 was a bicentennial. That's 200. And another 24 years to the turn of the century that we're 22 years into. Man, I feel old. So uh, so 246 years, not much longer than the time period we're talking about here. Are we finding ourselves making some comparisons in terms of where our country's at? After 200 some odd years. So we'll continue. Verse 6. So couriers went through all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes, as the king had commanded, saying, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria, Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of their fathers, so that he made them a desolation as you see. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord. Come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful, And will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. So the message, turn back to the Lord. Look around you. Look how bad it is. Why is it like this? Because we turned away from God. Don't be stubborn. Turn back. And there's a promise. The Lord is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if if you return to him. This is not a new or unique message, is it? And Isaiah, Micah, and Hoshea all had the same things to say in this era. Let's read on, verse 10. So the couriers went from city to city throughout the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, that's referring to the northern ten tribes, and as far as Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. However, some men of Asher, of Manasseh, and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the words of the Lord. So there's the reaction to the message. We see two kinds of people, two kinds of response to the message. Mockers and scorners on the one hand, and the people who humble themselves and obey. People with contrite hearts. This is nothing new either, is it? What do we find when we proclaim our message? We also see God at work in the hearts of his people. The hand of God was on Judah to give them one heart to do what? That which was commanded of them. God here is empowering and unifying the willingness of his people to obey him. Now, do we see some familiarity in any of this? Any of this sound like what we're experiencing right now? I mean, look around. We see just how crazy things are. And here we are as Christians. We're messengers sent by King Jesus. Anybody here a messenger of a king? Come on, really, guys? You've got to put your hands up if you're a messenger from a king, right? And what are we proclaiming? Turn back to God. (laughs) Look around. Why are things around us so bad? Because we turned away from God. Turn back. Don't be stubborn. And the promise is the same. Of course God will be merciful and compassionate to those who turn to him. Of course he will not turn away from those who return to him. So we'll read on. Verse 13. And many people came together in Jerusalem to keep the feast of unleavened bread. In the second month... A very great assembly they set to work and removed the altars that were in jerusalem and all the altars for burning incense they took away and threw into the brook Kedron. and they slaughtered the passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month and the priests and the levites were ashamed so that they consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings into the house of the lord they took their accustomed posts according to the law of moses the man of god the priest threw the blood that they received from the hand of the levites so these humble people repent and show up in Jerusalem. And what do they do? There's outward evidence of repentance. They're tearing down the altars to foreign gods. They're cleansing themselves. Ironically, the Assyrian Reb Sheka would later question this act. The Assyrians interpreted this action as an abandonment of God. They just didn't get it. They misunderstood the point. There's only one true way to worship the one true God. The priests and Levites, knowing this, were ashamed and responded accordingly. Also, as we see, the leadership owns their own imperfections, too, as people unify in their efforts to return to proper worship of God. Now, what is this starting to look like? A revival. (laughs) Right? That's what I should have called this message, the anatomy of a revival. Maybe somebody else already did. I don't know. Anyway, so we're reading on. Verse 17. For there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who was not clean to consecrate it to the Lord. For a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves. Yet they ate the path- Passover otherwise than as prescribed. For Hezekiah... Had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. Now let's sit with these verses for a little bit because this is a big deal. Look at what's happened. The people with contrite hearts communed with God. They celebrated the Passover at the wrong time. Not enough consecrated priests to properly perform the rituals. Many, the majority, celebrated uncleanly. Many were not consecrated. Many had not cleansed themselves. And so they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. Now under God's law, such acts would typically result in being cut off from the community at at best. And yet, Hezekiah intercedes for the people. This is a critical passage. Look what Hezekiah asks for. May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. And the Lord hears him and is compassionate. Let's talk about this intercession. right? Hezekiah's act is a type of Christ, a king, interceding on behalf of his people. Hezekiah is not the pre-incarnate Christ, to be clear. He's an imperfect preview of the perfect intercessor to come. And that perfect intercessor is Jesus, the Christ, who is descended from Hezekiah, who died on the cross to atone for our sins, rose again on the third day, ascended to sit at the right hand of God, and is now interceding for us. God hears Hezekiah. And what happens? As promised, God has compassion on the assembly. Now here's what follows. Verse 21, And the people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. And Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord, So they ate the food of the festival for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord, the God of their fathers. So what follows, when contrite hearts have communion with a compassionate God, what happens is a joyful celebration. Worship happens. Why? Because we've recognized our spiritual condition. We're humble enough to see that we're in a really bad place. And so we look around at our circumstances and recognize our need for God. And we turn to Him. We repent. We turn away from what we're doing and turn back to God. And then we find that He's compassionate, merciful, eagerly waiting to forgive us and accept us and love us. And we worship and celebrate. Then what? Verse 23 Then the whole assembly agreed together to keep the feast for another seven days. So they kept it for another seven days with gladness. For King Hezekiah of Judah gave the assembly a 1,000 bulls, 7,000 sheep for offerings. And the princes gave the assembly a 1,000 bulls and 10,000 sheep. And the priests consecrated themselves in great numbers. The whole assembly of Judah and the priests and the Levites and the whole assembly that came out of Israel and the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel And the sojourners who lived in Judah rejoiced. So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. So having found God to be exactly as merciful and compassionate as Hezekiah promised he would be. The people joyfully and spontaneously continued to worship and celebrate. They chose to extend the celebration past the prescribed limits. They're breaking the law. (laughs) Intentionally. And the leadership is all about it. Spontaneously, generously, graciously provides for the entire assembly Thousands of additional animals to keep feeding those who had gathered. How often does that happen? Ever been to any kind of celebration where this happens? No? Me neither. I've never seen anything like it. And the blessing of the priests and Levites was heard in heaven. Now, if you want to see the outworking of this joyful moment in Israel's history... I highly recommend reading the next two chapters, 31 and 32. You know, people came with humble hearts before God, and this thing happened in the assembly, and then they went out. And things started to happen. Stunning things, amazing things, supernatural things. You should read it. And what, what's the point for us? Has anybody missed it? Clearly, there's, there's value in understanding that when we approach God, the condition of our hearts matters. Humility matters. Repentance matters. Further, understanding the condition of God's heart when we approach him in this way also matters. We can trust him to be merciful and compassionate. And he promises to be when we turn back to him in humility and repentance, very often, Where we go wrong is when we fail to trust God's promise. We use some anticipated hostility from God as a crutch. We prejudge God. And then we use that as an excuse to keep turning away. To anyone who thinks that God hates them and wouldn't be merciful to them, I encourage you to try anyway. See for yourself. Turn back to God genuinely, sincerely, and see if he doesn't come running to bless you with his mercy and kindness and forgiveness. We're about to take communion because God's timing is perfect and the leadership postponed it. It was supposed to happen last week. <laughs> what do you know? And, of course, there are major connections between communion and the Passover. Jesus is the ultimate Passover sacrifice. He's described as the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world by John the Baptist. As such, he's the one-time sacrifice to atone for all sin in perfect fulfillment of God's law. And he made that sacrifice when he died on the cross. And the sacrifice was shown to be accepted and effective when Jesus rose again, From the dead, and then rose again to sit at the right hand of God, and now intercedes for us perfectly. Jesus and his disciples celebrate the Passover right before his crucifixion, and at that time, Jesus initiates a new covenant in his blood. It is this new covenant that we remember and celebrate when we take communion. So we're about to commune with a compassionate God. What is the condition of our hearts? Are we humble? Are we repentant? Are we ready to receive mercy? Are we ready to celebrate? Are we ready to worship? It's okay if if you're not. Don't participate because you feel like you have to. No one is twisting your arm. There's no judgment here. God wants sincere hearts. Let's take a moment to prepare our hearts. Lord, we enter this communion freely with hearts that recognize their own sin and need for you. We're so grateful for what you've done for us. We're here to remember and celebrate. Make a lot of noise now, let's begin. I'll read Paul's account of this from 1 Corinthians. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. We remember Lord Jesus. Thank you. In the same way also, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy. We remember your sacrifice. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's try to bring our hearts sincerely to this every time we do it. And now now it's time to celebrate. Let's, Let's worship together.